The Knee Gurus, with the latest research and advice from industry experts on knee injuries and pain, enabling you to make the best decision on how to manage your knee. Here's your host, Bevan Collis. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Bevan Collis, exercise and sports scientist and physiotherapist by trade and training, and co-founder, along with my wife, Vanessa, of Asia Physio, Asia's leading chain of physiotherapy clinics with branches across Japan and Singapore. The Knee Gurus podcast is sponsored by Pillar Performance. Pillar Performance is the first sports micronutrition brand. Built on decades of elite sporting research, Pillar was founded by ex-professional rugby union player Damien Fitzpatrick in collaboration with industry-leading performance dietitian Pip Taylor. Together they noticed that the unique set of micronutrient requirements for athletes were not being serviced by current diets and incumbent brands. Pillar exists to change that, bridging the gap between pharmaceutical medicine and sports nutrition led by breakthrough joint protection formula Motion Armor. Using a combination of clinically trialled patented ingredients including eggshell membrane, 5-loxin and curcumin, Motion Armor is a first-to-market product to reduce cartilage breakdown and provide joint longevity. This all-natural formula can also assist with joint mobility, perfect for those seeking to defend joints from issues associated with a heavy training load. Professional athletes and teams are now turning to Motion Armour for joint longevity, and it is now available in leading Australian pharmacies, sports nutrition stores, and internationally online at pillarperformance.com.au. Welcome back to The Knee Gurus. I'm your host, Bevan Collis, founder of Asia Physio and The Knee Gurus. On today's episode, our guest is Kieran Richardson. Kieran is a specialist musculoskeletal physiotherapist and has a master's in clinical physiotherapy from Curtin University, one of the world's leading physiotherapy schools in Perth, Western Australia. Kieran also consults at a number of physiotherapy practices in Perth, as well as nationally and internationally. Kieran is also director of Global Sports Physiotherapy a consultancy company of academics, researchers and educators offering formal mentoring, second opinions for complex patient presentations, professional development for physiotherapists, health professionals and athletes. Kieran has a special interest in evidence-based non-surgical management of musculoskeletal conditions, especially the anterior cruciate ligament. I'm really excited to have Kieran on today as he is at the forefront of this rapidly developing field of conservative management of ACL injuries and ACL healing. I'm sure you'll find this episode really useful and interesting, especially if you've recently sustained an ACL rupture and are making some decisions on how you might manage it. Kieran, thanks very much for coming on the show. It's good to be talking with you, Bevan. Yeah, it's thanks. nice. And I'm sure we're in the, t- are we in the same time zone? Uh, I think we're one hour in front of you. So yeah, I'm in Japan. Yeah. So uh, pretty close anyway. Cool. Sounds good. Yep. Nice. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, Karen? Yeah. So I, as you said at the start, I run a uh, consultancy company of academic clinicians and researchers, uh, and it's something I do full time. And uh, working as a specialist physio myself, I do still work with patients, probably about a day a week, and I do a mix of face to face and online consultations. A lot of acute knee injuries and knee injury and pain, just full stop. And we train physiotherapists and healthcare professionals. We run professional development and mentor them. 
and it's something we do locally where I am in Perth, Western Australia, but then we also do it nationally and internationally as well through platforms like Zoom and Skype. And it's been very popular since COVID. And, um, you know, we also run second opinions with patients, which is something I do every day, uh, often with other physios present virtually, uh, which can be really helpful. Uh, we find, uh, you know, given the, uh, you know, the, the way the world's going, it's good to have these different options, I think, where you can use, you know, telehealth and, and virtual virtual consultations has been cool. And so you see patients from, from all around the world, are you? How do they find you? Some of them will just have read uh, articles that I've posted online uh, through my website. Uh, others have found me through social media forums or um, posts that I've put on, say, Instagram or, or LinkedIn, Facebook. Uh, others have been through videos I've, I've put out there and, um, you know, they get me through my websites and we, I'll wake up and see that they've booked in and it's kind of cool. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's, it's such an exciting time, uh, particularly in ACL management because, you know, despite this growing body of research that's pointing towards this, um, sort of shift towards slightly more conservative management and less operation there's still not a lot of people talking about conservative acl management uh, and as you know the operation rates are, are continuing to increase and i think are in australia are at all-time highs uh, so yeah personally for people that know me I've, I've always been a little bit of a contrarian and uh, i've spent a large part of my career being the first contact practitioner for patients who've ruptured their ACL because we're working in the ski fields here in Japan and people are isolated. ACL is a very common ski injury. So we're in the privileged position to, to see these patients very soon after they've done their ACL. So we've, I've spent most of my career having these conversations with people that have just ruptured their ACL. So it's an area that, uh, that I've obviously been drawn to and, and even more so now that, that that message we're providing our patients has changed a little bit. So kind of a natural fit for me. But uh, how, how did you get involved in, in the ACL so to such a, an extent? Yeah, look, so it was probably around uh, eight years ago now where I had uh, was going through my specialist training and I had these two contrasting cases that sort of forced me to look into the research literature. And it was one patient, first of all, who'd had about five knee surgeries following an ACL injury. Um, and she came in and saw me on a four wheeled walker and she was just in complete agony and she was frustrated and um, you know disillusioned, I guess, with the whole process. And we did get her going, we got her rehabilitated and um, took about 18 months, but it had been like a four year journey for her. And then I had this other patient roughly at the same time who was, who'd torn her ACL and meniscus and she was adamant to not have surgery because her friends had had, had knee surgeries and it hadn't worked out for them. Mm -hmm. So she was just committed to, to non-surgical from the get go. And that just forced me to go, okay, well, this is the first time I've done this. Um, what should I do? So I spoke to some mentors. I spoke to uh, some researchers, both surgeon and physio researchers. And then I presented the evidence to her. We, we went through her options and started rehab and she got back to field hockey in about four months. And so from there, I've, I've really just continued to look into the literature and the, the research and, and 
been, uh, I guess, hit by the fact that there's a lot of people that are getting surgeries that they don't need. And uh, not to say that surgery is never an option, but um, I think for many people, doing rehabilitation and exercise can be a lifelong solution. And so, yeah, I've done, you know, I've overseen thousands now, either myself personally or through other physios uh, and through forums that I'm a part of. And it's, it's a lot of people can have us have success with this approach. So it's exciting. It is. Yeah. And so, yeah, I recently uh, went through your global specialist physiotherapy ACL training module and I found it really interesting. So for, for listeners that aren't aware, uh, Kieran's uh, developed this uh, training um, resource called the Global Specialist Physiotherapy. It's an online course with lectures and presentations run by Kieran that include around six hours of lectures and discussions. To uh, It's mostly, I think, targeted to health professionals. Would that be correct to say, Kieran? Yeah, that, that, that particular workshop is uh, mainly for healthcare professionals, although I have had patients do it. And I think just to give them some background literature and you know, give give them a uh, an insight into what their rehabilitation to, can look like. I have got courses specifically for patients uh, that are much more, I guess, simplified layman's terms. Um, but yeah, I, because I do, as I said, I do see patients, but uh, largely I'm an educator and uh, presenter. So I, I love um, I like doing both, and I think you know to have the option there online, you know, so they don't have to use me all the time it's probably a smarter use of my time yeah yeah and you could reach so, so many more people than than you can just doing one-on-one consults i guess yes exactly right yeah yeah so the one that i did had uh, a number of different courses there was uh, i think about a two-hour lecture on the history of acl management uh, research base for non-operative versus operative acl management um there was another lecture on the risks and benefits of operative First non-operative ACL management, early stage management and physical examination. And the last one was ACL non-operative strengthening program. So, yeah, as I was going through it, I was sort of starting to think patients uh, are becoming so much more educated this in this day and age and people seem to have a pretty high health awareness and there's so much more information out there that, you know, why not? Why wouldn't a patient sign up for those and, and most of the things they could probably understand. Yeah, and I think it's not something that they should be doing on their own. I think it is good to connect with a healthcare professional and uh, after your injury, so you're not just flying solo, so to speak. I think you, you should you should have a sounding board and someone who's experienced and trained in, in this method. And um, it's, it's particularly, you know, just having that blind spot cover just in case there's something you've missed or something you've misinterpreted because you don't want to be uh, reckless whether you're going about a um, you know, rehabilitating post the injuries, either non-surgically or surgically. It is something that has to be very controlled and deliberate. Yeah. Yeah, it really needs to be a shared decision-making and people get as much information as they can before before making that decision so they're reaching the right conclusion for them, you know, and there's... There's never one solution that's right for everybody and every person's situation is different, I guess. Yes, yeah, this is right. So as we were sort of alluding to earlier, there seems to be this disparity between where the evidence has 
pointing and the current practice in ACL management being that mm. there seems to be more evidence suggesting that more that probably less people need operations than are currently having them. Um, but in practice, more and more people are getting operation. And that, um, what do you, what do you think this is? Why, why is there this, this disparity? Look, there's that's a really good question, and there's there's heaps of uh, reasons why. Which you know, I don't want to launch into a lecture, but um, I guess that the surgical techniques were invented uh, in the early 1900s, um, but they've really been propagated in the last 50 years. And um, the healthcare models in, in typical Westernized societies would, would fast track people towards a surgical opinion and surgery and fund that as opposed to opting for rehabilitation or having that the option of rehabilitation as a standalone treatment first. Uh, and so I think, and then you have the whole media thing where where patients after um, sorry players after they've injured themselves will will be operated on within a day or two, and then if someone's doing a similar sport and they injure them even at, a, at an amateur level, they would have this belief that they need to then go into um, you know ha ha getting a surgical consult and having the surgery as soon as possible uh, to follow cultural trends. So then you have a large cultural trend element associated with that. Uh, and then some of the messaging around uh, what the surgery does and its its promises can also be, um, you know, implicit within that or explicit within that. You know, you're getting a new ACL. This is a one-way ticket back to sport. You know, that kind of language uh, can can prejudice a patient towards that and large population groups. So, and then we've got. I guess from a from a you know without getting into too much detail from a research point of view, we've got very low level of evidence, and then we've got high quality evidence, and the, the most high quality evidence hasn't really shown great outcomes uh, either way, or, or superior outcomes for surgery over just doing physio and exercise, and so that's given uh, people that are trained and experienced in in rehab the opportunity to present this as an option which I think is very exciting for patients and, and can be good, could be really good news for governments if they took it on board and it could be a massive cost savings and, you know, we can redirect funds towards this and, uh, you know, help to tighten up our healthcare budgets because the spending is a bit out of control in that, which is a whole nother topic. Um, so I think that it's, it's an awesome opportunity for the physiotherapy profession and for exercise physiology and, and sports medicine uh, and you know it doesn't it, it's not to say we're taking a scorched earth approach and, and no one ever needs surgery again but it's it's probably that the model's kind of upside down wrong where it's it's almost like people should go through physio first at least three to six months and then if they want if they desire the surgery or, or, or their knee keeps buckling then they can decide upon that but um, we haven't really seen that those pathways established yet yeah. yeah, the media is an interesting one because I, I, I guess the only time you tend to hear about ACL injuries or uh, in the media is with elite athletes and with professional players who've who've just done their knee. And the question is, oh, is it an ACL? Yes or no? Oh, it's an ACL. Oh, okay, he's off for an operation. He's going to be out for at nine to twelve months. And no, oh, isn't that terrible? And it, this kind of a heavy feeling in the conversation around this injury and and people see that and just assume 
well, that's what happens. You do your ACL, you get an operation, you're out for 12 months. It's a, it's a devastating injury and, you know, that's, that's just the way it is. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's sort of all a part of the whole sensationalism you see in media across different topics. Um, but certainly it's, it, it's considered almost this life-threatening injury, uh, which is, you know, which is what it is. But then, you, you, you know, you have international classifications that would describe the injury as a joint sprain. And so it, it's far less um, disconcerting when you hear it described as you've sprained your joint as opposed to, you know, this is 12 months of your life gone now or, or, or that assumption. And so I think the reframing of it, and it's not to say that we're making light of the injury because it's obviously painful and, and either way, surgically or non-surgically, you have to do the rehabilitation. But um, I think when you as therapists we can present it in a calm manner in and help the patients go through their options in a, in a really safe way and, and a graded way uh, you know without hysteria i think that makes it a much much easier to make a, a logical and smart decision as opposed to acting on emotion yep yep so for patients who may have had an acl rupture and they're considering their options what are the sort of factors that that you think they should consider when they're making their decision about whether to go the surgical route or whether to do delayed surgery or whether to just put all their chips in in not not having the operation what are the sort of variables that that are going to help them to decide one way or the other i mean yeah again that's a that's a very good question and we could probably spend the next hour um, i don't know how long the actual podcast is meant to go for <laughs> But, um, but we could spend the next hour talking about that. But look, I think um, it is an elective surgery. So it is something you can decide to do or decide not to do. And I've heard surgeons say the same thing. Um, so that's that's important to know. It's, it, and it's not something you, you shouldn't be rushing into it. I heard on this podcast the other day that, uh, you know, we're not going to rush into buy a house or, or rush into buy a car. You'd ask lots of questions and you would consider your options and look at other look at other sources. And I think it's the same. It should be the same with with healthcare and with our own body. But a lot of uh, patients aren't really trained to think that way. They kind of almost by default trust healthcare professionals and and what they're told, and they don't they don't sort of systematically question which the, you, i guess you're taught when you go through tertiary health science degrees um and po post tertiary degree you know doctorate degrees and, and as such um so i i really encourage if a patient's seeing me i encourage them to write out a list of questions they want answered and they can you know spend might i might spend the majority of of my first initial consultation with them going through that and i think that's arguably more valuable than anything physical uh, that I might do for them um, or even exercises. The education and, and having it set in your mind, uh, you know, what the research shows and, and what does this mean for my specific knee injury and what my goals are and, you know, how long is it going to take? These sorts of things patients should be asking. And what does, you know, what does the, the research say for my specific case? These sorts of things is, is what I encourage patients to ask. And what sort of questions do you find they're asking? I guess, can I play sport again? Can I, how long is it going to, until i can run again i guess yeah yeah so it's those sorts of questions so that ask um you know is non-surgical right for me uh you know what do i do about a meniscus tear if i've got one 
um, as you said, how long is it going to be for sport? Um, you know, should I, should I cancel my surgery? You know, these are the sorts of things that people are asking me. And, um, you know, I think we should be comfortable answering those questions if you're suitably qualified and experienced. And I think it's, it's a really cathartic process for the patients to go through that. And I think it's, it's probably one of the best features, I think, of that whole, what we call shared decision-making model. The patient comes with what their thoughts, beliefs, expectations are. As the, as the clinician or healthcare professional, we come with the same. And then we try to meet them somewhere in the middle and, and take them, help to take them on their journey. Yeah, I guess a lot of people are just conditioned to having the decision made for them, thinking, oh, well, I'm going to, I'm paying the doctor for his opinion, so I'm just going to do what the doctor tells me and then, or the same for the the, the physio. But, uh, and then I guess the way the hierarchical nature of, of the healthcare system is, it ends up with them sitting in a, in a knee surgeon's clinic um, saying, what should I do, doc? Should I operate or not? Um, rather than getting all the information themselves and, and coming to their own decision. Yeah, yeah. And we're sort of, you know, there's a lot of kids' shows that have like, you know, like Doc McStuffins, for example, you know, like where there's, the doctor is sort of the one that's uh, always in charge. And, and obviously we have to respect that interprofessionally. It's a team approach. And um, I think patients are getting more comfortable doing that, you know, going through and asking questions of their doctor, not just taking, taking or, or healthcare professional, not just taking stuff on face value. And, uh, um, you know, because these are big decisions and, and uh, with, with risks and benefits wherever you go. And so, yeah, I think, yeah, that's a very key thing out of today's podcast. I think, you know, you, 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 we want patients to know they have options and you're allowed to ask questions. And if anyone's making you feel guilty or, um, you know, not letting you do that. And I had a case recently where a patient was shut down. You know, she was almost rushed out the door and she was charged 330 euros for a 15 minute consult. And she was sort of rushed out the door and, she was like, you know, very teary, teary afterwards. And I don't think that's how healthcare should be. Um, you know, can, we can be a lot better than that. Yeah. Yeah. So if someone has just ruptured their ACL and they're uh, excited to try the non-operative route, at least, at le or at least, you know, do the minimum of, of say, 12 weeks strong um, supervised evidence-based rehab before making a final decision whether to operate or not, um, what does that management look like from from when they have an ACL through, I guess, through to that twelve week barrier, and then if they're doing well there, through to the return return to sport? Yeah, look, basically you have a sore and swollen knee, having just injured it. Sometimes it's difficult to put weight on it, and so a lot of the treatments and exercises that therapists would do early would be to help to ease that pain and swelling and improve the movement in your knee. And then we would hope to try and get you putting equal weight on it. And then starting to just move more normally, um, getting getting increased mobility and weight bearing, walking more normally, and then obviously getting stronger. And then, um, you know, the more, the, the harder we tend to go and the more, as the patient's pain settles, then we tend to, we tend to up the, the ante with respect to exercises. So we would put more load onto the, the one leg and, and uh, make it more challenging, build in some balance work. 
and it's it's quite a nice process and i think it gets quite fun for the patients and they can really see the benefit uh the amount of work you put in tends to relate to how quick you get better and um you know i think having early supervision from you know therapist is really helpful uh so i we, i tend to see the patients more initially and then i sort of space them out say fortnightly over that over that 12 weeks and it's yeah i think it's a nice it's nice to see it's and it's quite exciting to see the patients do an exercise program and then they, their knee feels better afterwards and i think that that seems to that tends to be more comp that tends to work a lot initially uh yeah which is yep. good yeah it's super rewarding and we see that in our clinics in the ski fields we'll have a patient who's just ruptured their acl they'll be carried in or, or um brought in virtually well non-weight bearing carried into the consult and popped on the on the table and you do the assessment you know check the auto and knee rules make sure there's no fracture and um and you get a pretty good idea that it's an acl from from the history that's that's often um that's often very similar the pop in the knee instability pain and so once you're sort of pretty clear that it's a a vanilla ACL, um, just you can get that person who was carried in often walking out almost uh, without a limp be just by mm. taking through that process. Okay, you've ruptured your ACL, but um, it's only a ligament inside the knee. The actual knee joint itself is still um, is still reasonably stable and able to take some of your weight. So let's just try putting a little bit of weight on it. And it's it's amazing how you can turn people around just in, in one hour just by giving them that message to sort of trust the knee and and that it's strong, mm-hmm. stronger than you think. That's a trust the knee and it's stronger than you think is a kind of a common mantra for us. And uh, it's, it's really rewarding to see that progression. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, what, how patients think about their knee can, can determine how they move and their, their outcome. So I really agree with what you're saying. I think you, you know, we want to take, I do take a very positive approach initially and, but still balanced, you know, I don't want to, don't want to hem them into non-surgical, but um, I think, I think when the patients are overtly scared and worried about using their leg, then you, there are some studies that talk about you're actually more likely to be unstable. So the more you can strengthen it sooner, the more you can get back to more normal movement and trusting it, the 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 better the likelihood of outcome is. And so I think you I think you bang on with that in terms of um, obviously we want to help to settle the pain down, but then getting your head right and tr- in trusting your knee and, and thinking about it properly. Yeah, yeah. So um, how about returning? to sport and the pathways before getting to patients back to, to doing sport, even at a decent level, um, non-operatively versus operatively. Is it, um, if they do well non-operative, do you think they can return to sport faster than if they have the operation? Most definitely. So uh, if, you know, this, well, the first point is the Swedish guidelines, which I don't believe have been translated to English, but I've spoken to Swedish researchers and they have said that uh, it's three to six months uh, for non-surgical management with return to sport. My experience is probably closer to six months. Like I really pull people back and I am very conservative with it. I certainly don't rush people. Um, surgery would be nine to 12 months typically and, and shouldn't really be any sooner than nine months. Um, so it's a similar process. You, you, 
once you've built the strength up in your knee, then you start building dynamic, dynamic strength and jumping and hopping on it. And then, you know, gradually returning back to, to training and over a period of time and then testing it with, with, um, you know, psychological tests do people trust their knee as well as physical tests of strength and, and, and dynamic balance. And then, yeah, it becomes a, a graded approach. And then you still check in with the patients once they've returned to sport and, you know, encourage them to continue on with exercises after. Uh, but, and yeah, there's always that if we're, going, if we're talking non-surgical, there's always that option uh, for, for surgery down the track. If it's things aren't working out. The other option, which we haven't spoken about is, uh, what they call becoming an adapter, which is basically if, if you injured your knee, say in skiing or, um, you know, some sort of pivoting task, uh, but you, you, you're not confident, you don't want to go back to that sort of cutting or change of direction type activity. You can just take on more straight line activities uh, and, and probably are at less risk of injuring your knee in the future. And so I think that's quite a wise approach and probably not spoken about enough. I think there's some patients that, you know, I did a, I did a professional um, athlete review for a, for a fairly famous club here in Australia. And, um, you know, there'd, there'd been multiple knee surgeries and, and there's a strong argument that you could sort of see another one happening. And so that was part of the conversation that, you know, you need to consider, you know, the best predictor of future is past. If you've had the same um, injury, you know, we're doing the same thing again, you know, where do we, where do we see this going? And so I think some patients, it is smarter to, to probably not go back to that. And so that probably needs to be spoken about as well, uh, you know, as a part of the conversation in, in some patients. Yep. Yep. For sure. Um, I guess you, you don't want to catastrophize the injury, but you also don't want to de-emphasize the importance of it because we do know that Unfortunately, once you've done your ACL, you are at a higher risk of osteoarthritis, and you know there's a pretty good, there's a decent chance you may not return to your same pre-injury level of, of function. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, and I think that in the past ten years, there's been some very rigorous research that's spoken specifically about ACL reconstruction, talking around half the patients don't get back to their pre-injury level. And one positive on the osteoarthritis thing, you, you are at an increased risk of osteoarthritis, but you might not necessarily get pain. Um, so, you know, we're talking radiographic arthritis, um, you know, on an X-ray, um, but you might not necessarily get pain. So sometimes when I tell patients that, that can be, you know, a little tick of hope for them. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's just striking that balance that's hard. And it tends to be us as physios, we want to, have all our patients achieve all their goals um, and tend to to push more activity, whereas um, the GPs and, to a certain extent, doctors and, and sports docs and knee surgeons are a little bit more conservative. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's always tough to, to find that right balance, but um, that's our jobs, I guess, to, to make sure the patient is is trusting the knee and, and overcoming their injury without doing further damage to it. Um, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so just on um, the topic of surgeons, most people that do their ACL at some stage are probably going to find themselves, uh, usually they'll go to a GP and get an MRI and then they'll end up having a consultation with a, with a knee surgeon. And generally most people will choose a knee surgeon because their friend went to it or they hear that the surgeon 
is a, the knee surgeon for their local elite sporting club, so he must be or she must be good, so I'll go and see them. What, how do you sort of recommend your patients to choose an e-surgeon if they haven't seen uh, one look, yet and they're asking your advice? If they're, if they're set on seeing a surgeon, then that's obviously something that they can do. Um, and I, I always encourage people to get multiple opinions. Yeah. You know, not in, in, not just mine. You know, they're, they're not, they don't have to stick with me. Um, I think they should they should get more than one one opinion. Uh, I particularly, if you go, whether you're um, choosing non-surgical or surgical, I, I particularly like someone who's done some research in this topic um, and has experience, obviously. Uh, so I think that's that's a good way of thinking through it. Um, you know, you, you want to go in with that list of questions that I mentioned before and um, don't feel rushed or pressured. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no rush for these, for these injuries. It's something that, that, uh, you can always decide to do it at, at a, at a um, protracted time point. Uh, so that's that's my main my main advice is, is seek multiple opinions and ask lots of questions. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a little bit of a sensitive area with this growing body of evidence questioning the need for so many knee reconstructions. Um, what what's been the reception to your sort of take on ACL rupture management interprofessionally? Yeah, look, I would say on the whole, very positive. Like I've had um, majority positive feedback, uh, particularly within the physiotherapy profession, um, within sports medicine and surgical, also pretty positive. You know, you do have some naysayers on social media, you know, keyboard warriors, as we would call them, really? um, who want to kind of, <laughs> you do. Um, it doesn't really bother me too much now. Um, and I think some of it, some of it is probably coming from a place of wanting to, um, you know, not, you know, we, we don't want to come across as just saying that non-surgical is the fix for everybody. Um, but equally, um, we have to be able to admit that most of the, the systems and, and um, healthcare models are set up for surgery and we have to acknowledge that. And so I think, uh, you know, the heat needs to be equally applied in both directions. Um, so yeah, I think, I think as long as what we're presenting to patients is balanced and, um, we're giving them an options and we're not forcing them, uh, you know, I've had, I've had very, very good discussions with surgeons, um, and very good discussions with the sports doctors. In fact, where I am here in Perth, we have like a little crew of myself, a sports doctor and surgeon, and we manage these patients like this, where it's very collaborative. It's not, um, you know, we're not trying to force the patients one way or the other. And if the patients ultimately choose surgical or non-surgical, it's like we, we sleep at night. And I think, um, I think in an ideal world, that's how it should be. Um, it might take a few years for that to become the norm. And what is it like? What's the typical patient experience like now for someone that's got that's done their ACL? Do you feel like um, the most of them are given all the options, you know, delayed surgery, surgery or conservative, or do you feel like most patients experience is, well, you've ruptured your ACL. When should we book you for your operation? 
I mean, it'd be good to hear your your thoughts and what you've found. But um, I would say, in a majority of cases, if they've if they've gone down the traditional medical model, they will be told they need surgery, uh, and there's not really much of a shared decision. So I like the concept of a shared decision, but I just don't necessarily think it's happening um, as as high quality as it should be, and as early as it should be. Um, so I would say, yeah, most patients are told that surgery is best, that surgery is a gold standard, this sort of thing. Um, but but I have seen a bit of a shift personally and, um, you know, I'm inundated seeing patients personally. And so, as I said at the start, and as we were discussing, I'm, I'm probably more interested in training um, healthcare professionals, whether you're a surgeon, sports doctor or, or physiotherapist, strength and conditioning expert, um, I'm more interested in that interprofessional communication um, because I want to see it shift. Because I've 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 seen I'm I'm yet to see a patient really regret waiting and going through their options, but I've seen quite a lot of patients regret having early surgery, and so I um, I really want to get that message across. And I think that's it's it is exciting and it's it's challenging in a sense because you do get some some people that are committed to, to early surgery. So then you, you do have a difference of opinion and um, you know, that can be, that can be what it is. Yeah. 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 With our patient, with our clinics, I guess, as I mentioned, we're having these conversations about ACL management operation uh, management options before, often before they've seen any other health care professional. So we're in a, a kind of a really lucky position that, um, we're having these conversations with patients, you know, every day in, in winter, well, in pre-COVID winter anyway. Uh, and you can see their face when you start to talk about non-operative management. They're often surprised. think, what? Is that possible? Is that a thing? So, um, yeah, hopefully, you know, this podcast and, and all the great work you're doing is, is getting this information out there so that people can realise there's, there's more options to choose from definitely yeah definitely and i think that's it it's just about you know it's almost like bringing a balance to the force like star wars you know we're just trying to we're just trying to bring a balance to the, the conversation and um i think that it's 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 it makes a lot of sense of, you know the way that we would manage any injury if you're a physiotherapist would be with this kind of approach you kind of have tears you would go through starting with with your physio first. You've always got the option of, of medication or injections if you need it, and then you've got surgery at the end if you need that. And I think um, I think healthcare the healthcare models are shifting towards that because it's quite cost effective. And uh, then you kind of streamline the people that really need surgery. Um, and so yeah, I, I I think it'll be the way of the future. It's just a case of how quick. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, last week we were speaking with. Uh, as we've coined her, the rock star ACL researcher, Stephanie Philbay. Uh, and one of the things that she sort of cautioned against when it came to making the decision-making is is if anyone's just selling you one side of the story, so they're saying, yeah, you definitely need an ACL operation, you need an ACL to live sort of thing, be cautious of that Um be cautious of that advice but on the other end of the spectrum we've got to make sure that we're not saying well you know the acl's not important it's um it's just a little injury and don't worry about surgery just get on with it sort of thing so how do you sort of 
make sure you don't fall into that trap or, or have you had any people sort of um, suggest that you've gone too far off kilter the other way? I think, I think you're exact. you're bang on with that. You, we have to take a, a balanced approach to it. Um, physios have to admit defeat. If, uh, if the patient has continued buckling of their knee or they've got a large meniscus tear on scan um, and they can't bend their knee or they get jackknife phenomenon and their knee just gets stuck, you know, for periods of time, then it just straightens all of a sudden, um, you know, they need to consider surgery. If, if they've gone through rehab and it's not working. Um, equally, if we've seen a patient uh, who's going really well with rehab, uh, if they're a younger patient or wanting to return to pivoting, we've organized a follow-up scan. There's MRI evidence of healing of the ACL. We need to admit that. And this patient becomes less of a candidate for surgery. And so I think it's, it's, it is this balanced um, and absolutely we have to be objective about it and not be emotionally attached to the outcome. And, uh, you know, that's where I place myself. And I think, I think, it's, you can sleep very well at night using that sort of approach. And it's not to say that um, surgery is never an option or that every single patient needs rehab alone, but we need to have all those options presented to them in that tiered way. And I've had, I've had very good success with that approach. Yeah. yeah. With, our, with our patients, we often say the three main important factors are, is that level of stability, which is, which is king. You know, is your knee buckling? Is it giving way or does it feel wobbly underneath you? Second is your age. You know, people that are uh, over 40 are uh, probably less likely to have the operation. And, and third is your future sporting goals. So if you really want to perform at a high level uh, in a sport that involves contact or cutting or jumping, then you might be more in the operative basket. How, how much weight do you put on that future sporting goals uh, as a deciding factor? Do you feel like... Uh, it doesn't really matter because if, if your knee's not buckling, you're performing at a high level, you can achieve any sporting goals you want or do you feel like somebody who wants to play sport at a high level, that's probably more points in the operative side of the ledger? I think it depends what we're you, what research we're using to justify our opinion on that. Yeah. Um, I, I would say I would say we can't you couldn't give a homogenous or one size fits all. Um, to return to jumping, cutting, pivoting, you need reconstruction. I would say that's that's not true. And I don't think that's um, an, even an evidence-based angle. Um, but, you you know, you're going to start to stack up those factors, like you were saying, if you've got um, a very unstable knee and weight-bearing um, and you're not confident to trust your knee and you're playing at a very high level and you've done a very good level of rehab, you know, for three to six months, then you're probably at risk of potentially injuring your knee if you go about that. You, you, you know, you're becoming the case that if you want to go for sport, you know, surgery is the next the next best option. Um, so, but to say that to say that to get back to pivoting sport, you're at a better odds of having reconstruction. I would say, show me the evidence. I'd say, show me the research. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think I think. It's prob you go back to the the podcast of the best studies and the research is where it's very balanced to two research surgeons, um, two research physios. They talk about signs and symptoms. You know, how does your knee feel? What do you think about it? And you know, what sort of pain do you get? That sort of thing. I think that's those those are the very simple 
that's very simply what I think it boils down to. And we, we, we can't work that out if, if the patient has had an early surgery, if they haven't tried rehab. So it's kind of academic from there. Yep. Yep. All right. So just moving on, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about ACL healing, which is, um, it's kind of almost come out of the blue, this, this growth, exponential growth in realizing that the ACL can and, and does heal. You know, when I was a, a student, we were taught uh, that the ACL is an intracapsular ligament that lives inside its own sort of bubble. Therefore, it doesn't get blood supply and therefore it doesn't heal. Uh, and that, I guess, is still to a large extent um, a common belief in healthcare professionals and in, the, and in the general public. But it seems like there is this growing body of evidence that it's, that it's incorrect uh, and the evidence is there's not a heap out there, but what there is suggests that um, that it does heal, and and I'm sure you've seen ACL healed cases in your clinic, as we have uh, many times in our in our clinics over the years. Can you give us a little bit of a a rundown on your opinion behind ACL healing, and maybe touch on some of the research that is out there? Yeah, and again, that's another really good question, and could be a massive massive conversation. Um, Obviously, when someone injures their ACL, you've got some, some different strategies that you can use to, to treat that. So you can have surgery or you could put the patient in a brace or you could do um, exercises to strengthen and stabilize the knee. And so, you, you know, or you could do a combination of all of that or just two of them. And so in the studies that have been done, Uh, there is various bracing protocols and there's currently bracing protocols being implemented in clinical trials with preliminary research showing very high levels of healing. Um, The the question is on the quality of the evidence and it it is low to moderate. So it's of the studies that are available, there is, uh, you know, low to moderate level evidence that says it can heal. But when we look at all of the studies grouped together, there doesn't seem to be any studies that actually say it can't. So that's, that's where it gets more interesting. Um, how can, and, and I guess healing is uh, a broad term. So you've got healing where you look at the MRI and it's basically uh, looks the same. So the, the person's um, MRI, the first one, is fully torn. Yep. And then you do a repeat MRI and it's actually normal. The ligament looks normal. Yep. Uh, so I've, I've lost count of how many times I've seen that now. Uh, and something I'm doing more readily is is getting a, another MRI to see. In, not in every case, but in in cases where they're, they're potentially going to be using more pivoting type tasks. Um, I've seen it attached to the PCL. I've seen it called a full thickness rupture. Then you do the follow up scan, and it was a uh, it was either a partial that was called a full thickness, or or one of the bundles is healed. Um, I've seen it heal loose. I've seen it also not heal at all, and it's completely retracted. So um, I think this is probably further reason to wait and, uh, you know, consult a healthcare professional who can talk through these options. Yeah. And how do you find the, the results on, if results on an MRI match up with your clinical findings and with the patient's own um, function in their knee? Do you find that the people who've had an ACL fully healed, say, on an MRI uh, also have a negative Lockman's and also have a stable, strong knee, or do you find that there is some disparity there? Uh, 
it's it's too massive a question like there's just too many different different ones i've seen you know i've seen i've seen people where the ligament has felt loose and then you do the, the mri and it's healed um i've seen it feel stable and you do the mri and there's it's not i've also seen it not heal at three months done another one at five months and it's healed <laughs> so i've just i could talk case yep. examples forever um and so, yeah, I think I think what's most important is, you know, I guess the signs and symptoms, like I said. But then, if if they're a younger patient under eighteen or between eighteen and thirty five, wanting to get back to very high level, I think you should probably see what the knee looks like after a few months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, we're hearing more and more about this um, study. We shouldn't talk too much about it because it's not published yet. But um, the whispers on the street are that the healing rates are, are very high in the protocol that's been developed and tested. So I'm not sure how yeah, far they're away from that one. But mm. well, I, I I think that I think the key with you this will this study is coming and it is gonna it does show very high healing rates. The challenge is there's other ways to 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 heal a knee. <laughs> You know, strengthening on itself is one way to to potentially heal an ACL. You know, there's different brace types that you can use, and so again, we don't want to get hooked on one method mm. um, without having comparisons. I do wonder if they'll ever to be, it, a... which is what we need to do. In... Yeah, sorry. Um, I was just going to say to talk about you triggered my thought with that line of being hooked on one method. I do wonder if there'll ever be a general consensus that this is the ideal ACL healing protocol. And if you've ruptured your ACL, these are your steps that are going to do that, that you need to go through to maximize your chance of, of ACL healing. I, I think there's probably too many variables for, for there to be one set one, but who, who knows? Yeah. It's a long way away if it is going to happen. I think. Well, you know, they did it. It's it's a long way away, and I think I think we can, I think it can get better for sure. There's there's a um, large study from this year. You know, the the first the first and largest study looking at ACL healing, and they suggested that when it tears more towards the top of when the full these are full thickness ruptures when it tears more towards the top of the ligament, it's got a greater chance of healing. Now I've actually seen ones where it's healed in the middle, healed just as well. <laughs> Yeah. So it's it's I think and you know in a lot of these these coming trials those patients where it's it's got the potential to be healed in the middle would be removed and have a surgery, so we never we would have never known. Um, so I think I think it, it yeah it is going to be hard and there's all sorts of f- pressurizing factors to to challenge that, um, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what we can say with a reasonable level of confidence now is that the ACL can heal and we should try and give it a chance to heal i guess i think i think to say that every single case it can heal is absolutely wrong um to say that it it could heal is correct yeah um and i think if you i'm getting more uh, confident to tell patients that it can and i think if we're deliberately not telling the patients that it could heal i think that's wrong Yep. You know, we need to be we need to be suggesting it, it has a potential to because it'll look silly if in five to ten years we have multiple high quality studies that say it can, and all all the while um, we've been saying it, it, either ignoring that it could or just saying that it can't. I think we, we need to move. We need to be really analysing that and and with vigour, you know, question 
explaining that and then presenting that that information to patients. Yep, for sure. And it'd be interesting to find out what the the healing rates are um, as we move forward. It seems like they'll be surprisingly high um, from from what I'm hearing. But um, well, yeah, as you say, that study will be published soon. So, yep. one of the uh, common reasons people give for doing an ACL is that well, if you want to perform at a really high level, it's you you can't do that without an ACL because you, you won't have that same control over your knee uh, uh, to perform at a high level in in twisting and cutting and jumping. But I noticed in your global specialist physiotherapy course, you mentioned quite a lot of elite athletes who who ruptured their ACL. There was the basketball player. Did you, I'm not sure how to say his name, Duan Blair, was it, who had he had two ACL deficient knees and played in the NBA? Is that correct? Yeah, so you have, you have obviously, I mean, there's case examples at the elite level of um, ACLs actually healing and confirmed on scan and the players have gone back. There's cases where it hasn't healed and they've been able to sort of function given their, their, muscle, their muscle stability and strengthening. Um, and so you do get, yeah, you get both of those, and then you get the ones where it obviously can't. They need buckles, and they they opt for surgery. But 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 really, at the elite level, it's almost um, it's almost one size fits all surgery. You know, these people, these athletes are getting surgery within a few days um, often. So I think it's going to be a. Although there is there is case examples, um, you know, an English Premier League guy got back in eight weeks, and you know there was hope that that might shift the discussion, but it's, it's um, at the elite level, there's all sorts of factors, contracts and media pressure. And, yeah. you know, the players aren't, don't have in, in, in sporting culture, they're not necessarily getting the best evidence based treatments anyway. Um, you know, so, yeah. It seems like there's this culture. If, if uh, an elite athlete wants to try conservative management, um, the, current practice is don't tell anyone you've done your ACL. So you heard, I think the NRL player, Peter Wallace, wasn't until he retired that they said, oh, well, look, he's played the last two years without an ACL. And I think from in rugby, Dan Carter, one of the best rugby players ever, ruptured his ACL and kind of kept it mm. quiet sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was at a, I was at a national symposium for ACL in 2017 and there was a, uh, a sports physician who was up on stage and, and one of the players who was um, fairly, fairly famous. He, he said, Oh yeah, well, he had a full thickness tear, but he was about to get married and he was towards the end of his career. So we just didn't tell anybody and his knee felt pretty stable. So we just went with it and he played his last two years without an ACL, but we didn't tell the media. <laughs> so it was like, you know, that was completely off the record. Um, well, it was a large conference. There was, you know, a few hundred, quite a few hundred people there. But um, you know these sorts of stories don't necessarily hit mainstream. But I think, I think if a few people do it, their ACL heals or they're very successful long term, it'll completely shift it. The, the challenge is then not to shift it so much that we think that um, you know the weekend warriors can do it on their own. It's as I said at the very start, it has to be controlled and measured and and yeah. Yep, yep, for sure. So just uh, changing tact of the. Uh conversation a little bit i wanted to talk about the psychological aspects of acl injuries okay uh, which we all know is a huge part well of any rehabilitation really in getting people to 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 get their head around um having having an injury and how they're best going to 
chart their pathway of getting back to sport. How do you sort of manage that psychological side of ACL injuries with your patients? As you say, it's a massive topic, I guess, and we could probably talk a lot about that. But uh... Yeah, I mean, huge topic and, and a multiplicity or many, many variables that you need to consider. Um, you know, the person's age, you know, what level they're at, the, you know, the motivation to perform, adherence levels, trust in the knee, um, you know, trust in the process, um, stress, anxiety, depression, you know, all these things factor in. And so we have to scream for that initially, you know, past medical history, if they had a psychological history. So all these things are a part of, of how I would, um, how to approach someone as they, as they're going into rehab and progressing through and looking at return to sports, all, all has to, it has to be considered as we're going through. It's not like you just have to consider the, the physical status of someone's knee. We have to consider the psychology. And so, um, you know, in my master's degree, that was a key part of, of managing pain and injury is that the psychology is so predictive now of someone's long-term outcome. And so it, when I'm going through and rehabilitating, it's absolutely something I consider uh, pretty much every session um, and, you know, trying to f- forecast that for the patient as well and whether we can we can treat that and, and consider it. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that Stephanie Philbo was suggesting last uh, when I spoke with her last week was was that perhaps you could consider referring on to a sports psychologist, which is not something I don't think I've ever done or 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 thought about. But have you have you ever done that, or what do you think about that sort of? Oh, uh, I've had I've had I can think on my hand the amount of patients that uh, I've needed to do that. Uh, I, there's a couple from memory where they were just ruminating and they were thinking about their knee. 24 yeah. seven. And, and I think when it's getting that much and, you know, they 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 literally can't stop thinking about it. Um, and these are, these, these are patients who've had failed surgery and they're wanting to try and go non-surgical graft deficient, which is possible, but it's, it's an intense journey, you know, arguably harder than, than, you know, first time non-surgical. So, um, you know, I think absolutely that's an option to, to consider sports psychology and, and get across that. But um, yeah, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be doing it with every patient. No. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, we already talked a little bit before about it's being our job to, to, to a certain extent decatastrophize the injury, but also make sure the person um, doesn't get further injuries to the knee. So it's just finding that, finding that right balance, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and one of the other concepts that has become pop more popular recently, certainly a term that I've come across a lot more in the last five years, is this this delineation of copers versus non copers, um, and then the adapters, which you spoke about earlier. Could you run us through this delineation of of do you do you consider you thinking that when you're consulting a patient, or oh, this this person's a coper not, or this person's really. a non coper? Not really, not not based on the traditional algorithms. You know, these algorithms were sort of invented 20 years ago um, and they were very pathoanatomical. You know, how many, have you got a meniscus tear? Well, you probably need surgery. Have you got an MCL tear? You probably need surgery. Um, you know, it was very, it was very geared towards surgery and the setup of it. I think it, it didn't really factor in psychology. Um, and I think that was a, that was obviously now looking back retrospectively a big miss. Um, so as, you know, I think a lot of what we've discussed today is probably more the um, 
you know, so looking at the looking at the patient as a person, considering all the factors, what their goals are. It's no rush. You know, you've got your options there, um, as opposed to can we predict who's going to do well or not? I think it would be impossible to predict. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think based on very good studies, we can't really predict who's going to do well or not. And so we have to. That's, this is why we have to give them these options. Yeah. Yeah, and I also thought it's not so helpful to throw a label on someone as a as a non coper because obviously it's our job to make everyone become a coper or an, an adapter we don't want anyone to be a non coper sort of thing so yeah and and you know also just you know look, using that same algorithms we had people that who weren't an, who were deemed or branded a non coper at 6 months but then you give them a, another 6 months and they become a coper Yep. So I think it's 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 a bit too restrictive in its um, rules, the COPA v. non-COPA research. So I probably don't tend to use it so much personally. Yeah, yeah. It's not something that you yeah we would ever say to a patient. But, um, but yeah, I have noticed that it's it's become really common. Um, yeah. So just summing up, Kieran, it's, it's been a great discussion. Just for anyone who's listening, who might have an ACL deficient knee or have ruptured their ACL in the last few weeks, what, what would be a couple of just simple tips and advice for, for those people on how to manage their injury? Yeah, look, I, I would say that uh, the first thing is just not to panic. Um, and, you know, don't jump on to Facebook surgery support groups <laughs> Uh, straight yeah. away because they're, they're, they can be quite catastrophic um, and certainly not evidence-based and, and kind of promote fear and worry. Um, and it's normally the real negative outcomes anyway. So I would, um, you know, plug in with a good, a good healthcare professional who you, who you're confident is going to be balanced in, in presenting um, all your different options and is, is, is happy to answer your questions. And, um, you know, I would, I would start off with a period of rehabilitation as we discussed and, and, um, you know, just believe that your knee can get better and, and, uh, you've got, you've got hope there that there's, there's good studies that show it can. And so, yeah, I, I, those are some simple things. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. I think people will find that really really helpful so so many di different points of view and um factors to consider that it's easy for them to get overwhelmed and 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 go into panic mode i guess as well yeah yeah, yeah. all right well thanks very much for your time kieran i've really enjoyed that discussion i hope our listeners have found it really helpful and uh it'll give a little bit more um options for people that have considering what to do with their ACL injury. Yeah, awesome. It was great to chat to you, mate. Thanks, Kieran. See you. All right, cheers, hey. The Knee Gurus is brought to you by Asia Physio. With branches in Tokyo and Singapore and across the four main ski resorts in Japan, Asia Physio provides world-class physiotherapy across all our clinics. With our centralised therapist training and clinic infrastructure, we deliver the same excellent level of care across all of our clinics. Whether sports or spinal, you can be sure the care you receive is evidence-based and targeted to returning you to full function in as few sessions as possible. See our list of services and locations at asiaphysio.com. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening along and thank you to Kieran Richardson 
Kieran's quite active on LinkedIn. And if you're interested in finding more about his collection of resources that he's developed, have a look at globalspecialistphysio.com. Be sure to follow us across all social media platforms at The Knee Gurus and Asia underscore physio. And have a look at our series on knee injury management that we're posting on YouTube. Thanks to our producer, Liam Lanak, and our graphic designer, Christian Coltman. Until next time, thanks for listening. The Knee Gurus, brought to you by Asia Physio, providing world-class physiotherapy care across Asia. Visit our clinics in Tokyo, Singapore, Niseko, Hakuba, Nozawa and Miyoko Kogan.